You're listening to Faith and Fostering, the podcast where people of faith chat about foster care in the Australian context to encourage, edify and educate others along the journey. Hi and welcome to another episode of Faith and Fostering. Terry with you today and we have the lovely Kirsty hailing from South Australia. Welcome Kirsty. Thanks Terry. Now, Kirsty, um, yeah, we wanted to unpack a little bit. You've just had a trip down to Hobart, Tasmania, recently for the National Foster Care Conference. And yep, have indeed. I thought it might be good uh, for those of us who couldn't make it down there, yeah, just to kind of go through a little bit of, I guess, the conference from your experience, your eyes, what was valuable, what you took away, and, um, and it just kind of gives all of us a chance to, yeah, I guess kind of get some insights into what's happening in Australia at those kind of events. So maybe if we just kind of dive right in and tell us, you know, even getting down there, how did you go leaving the family behind, (laughs) getting the accommodation, getting kind of settled? Yep. So um, this is the first national conference that, in, in fact, I think this is the first really big foster care conference that I've ever been to. Okay. Which um, having been a carer for, you know, 12 years, I was like, why have I not done this before? <laughs> um, I think some of it was that when we were in the absolute thick of um, working with high-end trauma, it's really hard to get away. Mm. Uh, and so this may, this kind of was an opportunity now to do that. So I actually, um, our agency sent about 10 carers. Wow. Um, so we were really fortunate because we were all expenses paid. Oh, and that's it was, so good. It was, I know. And we didn't have to, we didn't have to organise anything. Like basically I got sent my flights, I got sent my accommodation. Um, so from that point of view, um, our agency every year puts out expressions of interest for various uh, things happening around Australia. And um, I hadn't ever really applied and so applied this year and um, and got selected. And it's a great group. We took uh, 10 10 carers from our agency, which is Lutheran Care, and then we and then three staff came. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was great. It was great to meet um, some other carers, people I hadn't met before. There were there was a wide range of carers. There was some that were brand new and um, you know nine or ten months into their very first placements. There were others that um, have you know been carers for longer. There was um, a carer there who does respite care, which is really important. And I love that she was recognised because I think sometimes we go, oh, they're just respite carers. Um, But it was great to have her along as well. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, so a wide range of carers, short-term carers, long-term carers, um, emergency carers. There were some um, therapeutic carers. So it was a great group and it was great for me to be able to meet other, other carers in our agency um, and we pretty much had a blast. It oh, was great. <laughs> I can imagine. It's just it's kind of like people who understand you, kind of mm. understand the challenges. It's just a really um, affirming kind of environment, isn't it, to be yeah, it, in? It is. It is. Um, so we flew down on the Wednesday night, which yeah. meant because that's the only direct flight from Adelaide is, um, is on Wednesday night. So that meant all day Thursday we had free. Oh, was, that's great. Which was, is a three-day conference, wasn't it? Like Thursday night, Friday, correct Well, me. yeah, Thursday was kind of late and it was registration um, and the welcome and a cocktail party. Okay. So really not much on Thursday. Yeah. So we spent Thursday, everybody kind of, you know, went out and did their own thing and um, 
a group of us walked into Hobart and then um, one of my friends and I, we walked back along and looked at all the sculptures, the sculpture walk, and um, and then we'd actually pre-booked massages. So... (laughs) What a great idea. So we went, we went, we actually got those, you know, those scooters? Yeah, that, yeah. Um, yep. Never ridden one in my life before. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, let's just give it a go. And so we got on these scooters and we had so much fun riding back into Hobart to then go and have these massages. And so by the time we got to the cocktail party, we were just like, I am feeling really good now. <laughs> I am relaxed. I am ready uh, to learn. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah, so kicked off with cocktail party, which was just an ability to um, mingle, meet people, um, sort of just that nice casual. And that didn't go for long. Uh, yeah. And then we, we kind of headed off for dinner. Um, again, great venue because we were staying at Rest Point Casino. Everything was there. We could eat there. We could, you know, we didn't have to be continually going off site, which was great. Yeah, that is good. Um, and roughly, I mean, you might not know exactly, but what do you think the sort of attendance numbers were, just ballpark? I think some, I heard someone say around the four, 450 okay. at the maximum. Now, yeah. um, I think the cocktail party was really oversubscribed. They didn't expect so many people to turn up. Okay. And um, I had heard someone say that as well, that normally the cocktail party isn't there isn't a lot of people that turn up, but there was a massive number that turned up. That's great. So I think maybe the venue had something to do with that because the casino is kind of stuck out on its own. Um, Probably lots of people were staying in that area Mm. and therefore they kind of went to the cocktail party. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good because really that's often a place, like you were saying, being in that environment, meeting new people that you haven't met and building those connections (laughs) That makes a world of difference when you're in the thick of things, having some people mm. that you know, uh, yeah, in the trenches alongside of you. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And for me, meeting some of the people who are on the Facebook page that we have oh, um, and putting some faces to those people and uh, and meeting some others who then we've added to the group now because they didn't know about the group. Um, and I, yeah, I just think I also got to meet Stacey Blythe and we've done, you know, um, Stacey, Stacey's done lots of research and um, so it was great to kind of finally put a face to her. I've spoken to her before. but Yeah, that's um, so good. Actually, I reached out to Stacey this week too and, um, yeah, she's going to be on a, an episode for us. So that's going to awesome. be so good. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then um, Friday morning mm-hmm. it all kind of kicked off. Um, and the, it kicked off with a keynote speaker who was Anne Hollins, who's the National Children's Commissioner. I think I've got that right. Yes. So that was great because it set that whole national tone. Um, and Anne was great. She talked about uh, mental health, trauma, well-being and culture hmm. uh, being the important things for our children. Um she also talked about the fact that we have almost a quarter of the Australian population, uh, I think she said 24%, are children under 19. Wow. And yet and yet, we don't tap in and look at that quarter of our population when we're making policies and when there's decisions being made and, um, you know, most most things are made with adults in mind. Yeah. Does she just mean a quarter of the Australian population is in that age bracket? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 20, 24%. Mm. Um, and they're largely not considered Yeah. when when policies are made and 
you know, because I think one of the things she said that really hit me was she said children don't vote. Yeah. And so yeah. no, no one's really interested. Yeah. Um, well, not no one. We know there's lots of people who are interested in children, but um, I guess they're just they're just underrepresented in terms of um, when policies are being made. And yeah, um, she also talked about children who are not heard can't be protected. Yeah, and children who are silenced cannot be protected. And she spoke around that quite a bit, which was which was very interesting. Yeah, um, and I. And I think we do need to listen to children more and our politicians need to listen to children more and, you know, as a whole, um, children need to be considered more, not just adults making all these decisions. Yeah. As you were saying that um, before when you were just sort of saying, you know, children can't vote, I was thinking it's really up to the adults in a child's life mm. to be speaking on their behalf. And I think, yes. yeah, even as um, believers we hear that phrase about being a voice for the voiceless and again, it is that space, um, particularly when you start looking at out-of-home care, where you, I mean, advocacy, that word comes up often, doesn't it? Where yes. you're actually yep. advocating on behalf of somebody who doesn't have a voice of their yes. own. And really, I guess what Anne's also saying is that extends out even beyond out-of-home care and into this age bracket of young mm. people in our country. So that's yep. really interesting to think about. And and I think that's where, like, children that that comment children who aren't who are who are not heard or who are silenced can't be protected and I think that is as foster carers that's where our or you know kin carers as carers that's our role becomes to be that voice for them mm. exactly that the advo- the advocating for them and making sure that we're that we're getting involved where we can yes to advocate for our kids yeah um so that they're not silenced um she also said we talk a lot about children at risk but we don't talk a lot about those that are not at risk enough. Mm. So those that are just on the fringes, that we know that they're on the borderline of um, the department have kind of got them in their sights, but they're not at risk enough to remove them. But we need to be looking at how do we put more supports in for those children and those families and how do we support um, those those that are not, not at risk enough. enough. It's almost like um, a, a preventative strengthening families kind yeah. of approach, isn't it? So, yeah. hey, if we, and I know um, I've heard our agency kind of talk a bit about, they've got some programs, which is that preventative kind of infrastructure that comes around an at-risk family yes, and doing all that they can to, yeah, I guess, support and um, help that family stay together. So it would yes. be interesting to know from policy point of views, you know, what, what is already out there, you know, yes. that people are rolling out already in care and how effective that is. Like if you are supporting a family, what the outcomes are, like are they better where there's, mm-hmm. you know, in the long run does that mean that often it doesn't end up with removal or, yeah, I'll have to ask Stacey mm. about that and find out what kind yeah. of research <laughs> has been done around that. Yes, because I think, you know, it's great that we have foster carers and, and carers and we're going to continue to need them. Mm. But actually what's better is if we can put in all of that support to help families to to change and to and to um, raise their children. Yes. Because we know that those outcomes are going to be better. Yes, and it's um, almost like, um, you know, I think you've probably mentioned her as well, uh, Jamie Finn over in the States where she talks about fostering a family. It's almost like the 
um, the fostering a family before the family before there's actually removal. Like if that family yes. is open, and I think that's probably the the sticky point or the hard point. Sometimes it's the removal which then opens up the receptivity, isn't it, to being yeah. influenced by outside influences. But if there is a way that, yeah, you could encourage or um, show families how it could be beneficial before, um, then there's, yeah, it's a really good space to think about. And mm. hmm. what, what did you do, take away from that personally? Well, I, I do worry sometimes that we've become too isolated in our parenting and in our, in our lifestyles in general. Yeah. And so when, you know, I mean, you know, probably back in my grandmother's day, there were family around her who would support and, um, and you know, I've got the privilege of like I've got two daughters who've got babies and so and we're in that proximity where we're part of their village and, um, and but I think we need to recognise there's a lot of families that don't have that, either through dysfunction or through um, geographical, you know, people that just don't have any family. I mean, yes. we, we raised our children with no family here. Um, as such and so that's hard because you you're trying to you're trying to do everything I mean I had people that uh, could teach me how to parent Mm -hmm. so I did have a village but we didn't have um, we didn't have close family and that that had its challenges at times particularly when your village is made up of people who are all going through the same thing at the same time yes because your capacity Um, is limited if you're in the same season aren't you yeah Mm. yeah and um and so I think that we need to think more about how we reach those families who don't have, and particularly, you know, I think a bit of a burden for me is our is our young, our young women that are coming through the foster care system and then who find themselves in that same dysfunctionality and um, and find themselves pregnant and then and then you know the department generally removes the babies and you go, is that really the right way to do it? Like, should we not be looking at how do we how do we support mum and a baby and mm. give them that opportunity, but not just go okay? Well, let's see how they go and put them out there all by themselves. Yeah. Um, so is Anne kind of, saying at this stage there isn't really those things in place, um, or what does she kind of mm, touch on what is already there in that she area? Talked, well, I don't know. Let me see what else we talked about. Was it? Yeah, she. I think she didn't really talk, not that I can remember anyway, yes. about programs that are there. Um, I mean, there's certainly other things she spoke about in terms of, which I was a bit gobsmacked by this, but apparently we lag behind other developed countries and we have a learning gap of 20% of our 15-year-olds do not have literacy skills that are mm. that are adequate. Yeah, 20%. And I thought... We're living in a developed country, a really affluent country, you know, and that surprised me. So we talked about, she talked about learning gap. She also said that one in six children in Australia live in poverty. Yeah, wow. Um, Suicide is the leading cause of death for 15 to 17-year-olds. Wow. And this one was fascinating. 50% of adult mental health issues show up in children by the age of 14. Yeah. And she said they don't just show up at 14. Yeah. She said so 50% of all adults who are going to have a mental health issue, that starts showing up in childhood. And so that's, that is really big. We mm. need to, we need to be, and I think as a, as a country we're starting to look more at mental health, but it's still really hard with um, 
children to get the right help. You know, I, I talk to other people and they say it's just hard to get. It's hard to get. Um, like I was talking to a mum at school and she said it's like 18-month wait just to even um, have an autism assessment at the mm. moment. And, you know, that she said that's 18 months of like, what are we meant to be doing? Yes. And that's, <laughs> um, that's where though like forums and conferences and villages mm. and other people who've walked that journey come become so valuable to you um, when mm. you can't get to see an expert. The next best thing is lived experience, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then and then a bit of guesswork, you know, like is this child? And, you know, we're not, we're, uh, you know, I can't, I'm not a, I don't yep. diagnose things. <laughs> yes, yes, we're not <laughs> but, um, professionals, but we've got experience right. in the living yeah. of it, haven't yeah. we? And so it's trying to support those people and say, you know. Um, she also said that no one, there's no one person, and I think this is something that probably really does need to change, no one person is accountable for change with children's policies. Child policies are kind of scattered over lots of different jurisdictions. Yeah. But there's no one person that goes, this is my this is my thing. Yes. This is my portfolio. This is my thing. Um, what else did she say? Where there is child maltreatment, it is it is nearly always associated with DV. Mm, so again, yes. big issues. Um, and we need policy reforms that go right across health and education. We need like, but yeah, she didn't. She didn't really talk about what she talked about more about what we're not doing. Yes. Um, some fascinating. Um, comments from her about that she talked about youth justice and child well-being reform um, and talked about how failed upstream systems so health and education when those systems fail often children end up in care and then care systems fail them and then they end up in juvenile in the just youth justice system it is like a linked process it's, isn't it yeah mm. yeah yeah so um and she said which this resident, this kind of just hit me. State is their guardian, and then the state becomes their jailer. Mm. So, um, and she said, in jail, they're not getting what they need. So youth, so youth justice, they're not getting what they need. They just learn to be better criminals. Yeah. And so when you hear some of those things from a person who is like widely invested in this area, and this is, and she's widely knowledgeable, and she talks to people, and you know, you go, that's actually a bit mind blowing, really. Um, and makes you kind of feel like, what do we need to do to help these children not end up in the youth justice system? Um, she said, we need better coordination of services to what suits families and children rather than what suits the government. Yeah. And that I must is, say, that's always a, a challenge, isn't it, with policy? Because policy mm. is these big arm movements, but that yeah. policy doesn't have room for all the nuance and intricate implications that happen in each individual situation. And that's where yes. people can bring the nuance, but people are governed by the policy. And that, yes. like, how hard is yeah. that to find? Yes. Um, yeah, the way forward in those places. That is super yes. challenging. And I don't think it's something that we will ever fully eradicate whilst whilst policy governs family, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, who knows? That's that's an interesting one to ponder and think about as well. And but Sometimes I just feel like it's this great big hole that's just too big <laughs> to even. Yeah, you know what <laughs> I come back to in that space is for the one. Like if I can yes. start with the one, 
Yes. Um, and if opportunity opens up to advocate or move into a broader space, fine. But mm-hmm. yes, you, you have to keep on bringing it back to what is in my hand and what can I do for the one? Um, yes. Otherwise, you wouldn't do anything. And I don't think that's the answer either. So yeah. I think it is it's it is good to go and get the big picture because that helps you frame you know, what am I doing here and where does that fit in? But then it's, it's the ability to bring it back to, well, I wake up on a Monday morning and this is what I do. And yeah. living with those two things concurrently is, yeah, at times challenging. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, a, it's the starfish, isn't it? I can't save them all, but yeah. But I can do my bit. and, and I can do my bit. Again, I think that taps into faith. Um, what is it that I feel stirred to? Um, Mm. We've actually just been talking about this um, idea of being stirred but not shaken. You know, we are stirred Mm. by the things that God's asking us to do, but we're not shaken by the brokenness of the world, The what feels at times like overwhelming or kind of the hopelessness, but Mm -hmm. we are stirred to respond in, um, I guess, the capacity and the... um, kind of gifting or whatever it is that he's given us. And that mm. to me feels like a hopeful posture rather mm-hmm. than just, oh, my gosh, it's, it's yeah. all so bad. It's all a mess. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's um, I think it's kind of important to just tap into what you can, where yes. you can. And for me, I think it's big picture. It's keeping your eyes because you're living the day-to-day and it's hard to actually – forget sometimes that you've got to you're not actually fighting for that actual thing you're fighting for something bigger yes sometimes we've got to be we've got to take up that bigger um action yeah but um the other thing Anne said that um I think these were my real big take-homes from her is that we don't have a knowledge problem in Australia we have a doing problem and she said that there's been 12 years of royal commissions inquiries all sorts of things across the country 3,000 recommendations and we just keep doing them we just keep doing royal commissions and we just keep let's look at how we can fix the system we actually got all the knowledge of how to do it what we need to do now is do it Um, yeah and she said Someone, there needs to be accountability for action. We can't just keep spending all this money working out what's wrong with the system and then not actually uh, fixing it. Yes. Um, and I think her, I think the the um, her sort of final words was that she said she talks to children all the time around the country and and she says to them, "What would you like me to tell the prime minister?" And she said, "She said I haven't I haven't got an interview yet with him. She said, I'm hoping to get one soon." <laughs> get some time with not an interview but some time with him to discuss some of these things and they and predominantly what children say to her is just do something with what we've told you Hmm. so again just do it we've got to kind of stop talking about it um and do it Hmm, make the change (laughs) yes well I Um, think that's a good spot to just wrap up for now and then mm -hmm. um we'll we'll have another episode part two where we yeah unpackage a little bit more what else that um, you've learned. We hope you enjoyed part one of this Faith in Fostering podcast. You can tune in for part two next week. And in the meantime, let's remember every child deserves a family. <laughs>